Good day to you. We are going to be having a look today at a passage from Matthew's Gospel. And in the theme of Lent, next week we move into Holy Week. I'm going to look at this passage from Matthew 20 because um, it is just a record of two things that happen just before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So this coming Sunday, we mark in our Christian calendar as Palm Sunday. And uh, the text for Sunday would be Matthew 21. Um, obviously, it's also recorded in the other Gospels. But just in terms of the way that Matthew records what happened in those last days of the life of Christ, um, I thought it would be nice for us in this Bible study just to have a look at these two things um, that happened in Matthew 20. And this can also prepare us for um, the time of, of Holy Week. So, friends, wherever you are, thank you again for joining us. Um, if you have a Bible, please turn in uh, in your Bibles to Matthew 20. It doesn't matter what translation you prefer to use, um, but just follow with me as we read it. And then if you choose to make notes, then also do that. And uh, I hope that there will be some time of reflection in our own lives as we come to the end of our Bible study later on. So let me pray for us, and then we can get into our Bible study for today. So, Lord Jesus, we are mindful that this is a very special time for us as Christians as we get closer and closer towards Holy Week. Um, for us, it is the pinnacle of our faith. We remember how you died on the cross. We also are thankful that we know that the story ends with the empty tomb and the resurrection. But as we ourselves read through these familiar passages again, we ask that your Spirit would just speak to us, um, help us to move beyond the familiar into a deeper place. Uh, we pray for greater maturity and discernment in our faith, and so speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So just also to say welcome to those of you who are listening from around the world. I heard this last week that there are a few of us who are listening uh, to these Bible studies in other parts of the world. So Thank you for joining us and welcome to this online community. So Matthew 20, I read from verse 17 to 19, first of all. So it's just come out of the parable of the vineyards, uh, the vineyard workers. Jesus now predicts his death. And verse 17 says, as he was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and he told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and to the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with the whip, and then crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. So that's the um, three verses from verse 17 to 19. And then we're going to skip out verse 20 to 28, because we spoke about this a few weeks ago, about serving others. Um, this is when James's, uh, James and John's mother, they're the sons of Zebedee, that she asks whether they can sit on either side of Jesus. But as I say, we have covered that. And then I skip down to verse 29, and this is what Matthew says in the last verses of Matthew 20. As Jesus and the disciples left the town of Jericho, a large crowd followed behind. 
Two blind men were sitting beside the road. When they heard that Jesus was coming that way, they began shouting, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Be quiet, the crowd yelled at them. But they could only shout louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. When Jesus heard them, he stopped and he called, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said, we want to see. Jesus felt sorry for them and he touched their eyes. Instantly they could see. Then they followed him. And that takes us to the end of verse 34 and then would be uh, the start of chapter 21, which we'll get to on, on Sunday. So friends, just a few thoughts about um, verse 17 to 19. Um, it tells us, if you look a little bit around the commentary, that this is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death. Now, remember that the Gospels were written many years after the events had taken place, and this is the way that Matthew has remembered the um yeah, the encounter he had with Jesus and the many years they spent together. But it's interesting that that what we are reading here is that Jesus had told his disciples that these events would take place, but obviously they had never fully understood the implication of it. Um, if you want to go back and see where, where else in Matthew's gospel he had spoken about it, uh, it would be Matthew chapter 16 and then also Matthew chapter 17. So Jesus has told his disciples, um, verse 17 intimates that it's a private conversation between himself and his disciples. And then he, he tells them, listen, we're going to go up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed. Now, just that phrase out of interest, going up to Jerusalem, um, it, it was true that the the parts of uh, Jericho and Bethpage and the other parts on the other side of the valley were lower down than Jerusalem. So they would have actually been traveling up the hill to Jerusalem. So it's not just a saying or, or, or um, a matter of Jesus talking fr frivolously, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. It's actually what would have taken place. And then he says, where the Son of Man will be betrayed. Now that term is interesting. Now, I'm going to draw attention to this because in the second passage we're looking at today, the, the phrase Son of David is used. So I think it's worth just spending a minute on, on these for now. I'll deal with Son of Man first. And that is a, a saying that according to scholars, the Son of Man, that phrase itself, occurs in Matthew's Gospel 32 times. Mark's Gospel 15, Luke 26, and John 12. And what is interesting, according to the scholars, is that this term is used by Christ himself on almost all of these occasions. I think there's only two occasions where it's, it's mentioned uh, Son of Man about Jesus, but almost all of the times that it is used, you'll see it's Christ speaking of himself. Now, there's a lot of complicated uh, commentary around this, but I'm going to make it very, very simple. What does Jesus mean when he's speaking about Son of Man? Well, he's implying that he is a, um, he's fully man and fully divine, because he also would use the phrase Son of God, which implies his deity, but Son of Man implies his humanity. 
And so there's, there's that as a very simple starting point, that when he speaks about himself as the son of man, and, and this is um, son with a capital S, would be that he would be the representation of humanity. Um, and that's, that's kind of in its, in its entirety. He represents um, the, the, the humanity of us all. What is also interesting is that this phrase, son of man, it does occur in Daniel chapter 7. And the son of man is an exalted figure, um, not just a human figure, but one that is exalted. And so there's a strong possibility that when he's speaking about himself, he's fulfilling also an ancient prophecy that came from the book of Daniel. Now, I would invite you to look at Daniel 7 and see if there is something in there for us. But that is just, as I say, thanks to some of the commentators who give us that insight. So Jesus says, yes, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and to the teachers of the, of the religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with the whip and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Now, as we journey into the Holy Week, starting obviously on Palm Sunday, we know that that all comes true. Um, but one almost has to picture the disciples hearing this, but yet seeing Jesus fully alive, fully healthy, fully well in front of them, that they couldn't really comprehend what he was saying. But it's interesting that as we read it and getting towards Easter, that we see the severity of what was going to take place in the life of Jesus. Okay, so that's his prediction of death, and we'll get to that next week uh, in our Holy Week. Then verse 29, as Jesus and his disciples left the town of Jericho, a large crowd followed behind. So this whole gathering of the large crowd, you know, they don't give a number of, of people. We know that in some places in the Bible it speaks about crowds of, say, 5,000 or gathering of 120 or 70. So a large crowd, um, I mean, we could just picture what that number would be. I, I don't believe it was in the hundreds of thousands. It may have been a thousand or so. Um, but obviously the roads in those days are a lot smaller um, the towns were not nearly as big as they are today, but there were, were enough people walking alongside the road with Jesus and his disciples to be caught up in this moment. Now, remember Jericho, uh, sometimes known as the city of palms or palm trees or the city of roses, um, famous for when Joshua, thousands of years before this moment, had walked around the city of Jericho in that lovely uh, story from the book of Joshua. Also, Jericho, famous for the encounter with Jesus and Zacchaeus. Um, but they are now in the town of Jericho again. Just if those of you who enjoy the geography of it, apparently it is about a thousand meters uh, lower in altitude than Jerusalem. So coming back to what I'd said earlier on, that when they were on the road to Jericho and then to Jerusalem, Jesus had said to his disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem. So the large crowd follows behind Jesus as they're walking on the road. Just try and picture that scene. Two blind men are sitting beside the road. Now, interesting if you compare the gospel accounts, because there, um, there are other accounts in the gospels of Jesus 
uh, healing people who are blind. One is in Mark chapter 10, the other one in Luke 18. Both Mark and Luke refer to only one uh, blind person. Mark refers to Bartimaeus. He gives him the name of Bartimaeus. Um, and and look, it, it's possible that it's the same story um, and that Matthew just refers to two of them. Um, it could be that Mark and Luke referred to Bartimaeus because he was the one who spoke out, who was maybe more vo vocal than the other one. Uh, I don't think we need to get too bogged down in that. But it was a common place for people who were blind or who had some kind of um, like like frailty or uh, you know who were who were poor to be on the side of the road begging. There was a common common occurrence. And when they now uh, so that it obviously didn't see the crowd, but they heard the crowd or maybe those people that were assisting them or who were close by told them what was happening. Um, they hear that Jesus is coming that way. They began shouting, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. So the obvious reason for shouting is just to be heard. There's a big crowd. They um, have to raise their voices. We all have done that before in a crowded room. If you want to be heard, you've got to raise your voice. They want to get Jesus' attention. That phrase, son of David, um, is confirms that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. Now, every every a Jewish person knew that, that the Messiah would come from the line of David. One can look at prophecies from Isaiah chapter 9, from Jeremiah 23, and we would see that this phrase, son of David, occurs there. So even in the retelling of the story, Matthew points out that there was something within the blind men, um, and we could probably add blind beggars because that would have been the only way they could make a living, that, that they believed in the Messiah, believed that this man, Jesus, could well be the Messiah, or certainly he was a holy man, and they believed that he could have mercy on them, that he, that he could help them. And so they call out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now the crowd, now whether this is the whole crowd yelling at them or whether it's Jesus' disciples, we aren't told. But the point is that the, those who were close to Jesus wanted to hear Jesus teach and didn't want these uh, blind guys to distract them. So they, they almost are insinuating, listen, Jesus hasn't got time for you now. He's, he's talking to us. See, it was common practice for rabbis as they were walking along the roads to teach. And so, you know, if, if we picture Jesus walking along these dusty roads, teaching them about various things, um, you know, one would need to be close enough to him to hear, um, because I doubt Jesus, you know, would have got very far if he had to stop and then do a teaching and then maybe walk a few hundred meters and do another teaching. So he would be walking and talking as he went, or so we believe. So they are told, these two blind men are told to be quiet. But the Bible tells us that they, they shouted even louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And it's I think it's the repetition that brings us to this point of seeing that these guys had enough faith to ask for help. And I think even the, the irony of this is that even the blind men 
could see, and I put that in inverted commas, could see or could tell that he was somebody special, that he could help them, that all the other religious people that had been around them had failed or had fallen short in trying to help them. But there was something about this man that although they couldn't see, they could sense. And so they were desperate for his help. Verse 32, Jesus obviously has now heard them because it says when Jesus heard them, he stopped and he called, what do you want me to do for you? Now, <laughs> it's, uh, it's such a leading question, isn't it? Because we think, Jesus, surely you could see that they were blind. Surely you would be, you know, assuming that they're calling to you. Why? Because they want to be healed. They want to see again. And the more, I suppose, we reflect on this, and if we did the whole meditation on this passage, it may reveal something on a deeper level. And that is that nowhere, certainly in Matthew's account, do they say, Lord, Son of David, help us see. Lord, Son of David, let us have our sight back. They just say, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And maybe that gives us a clue too, because what would God's mercy, or what would the mercy of Christ mean for these people? Would it mean the forgiveness of their sins? Um, immediately, I mean, I just assumed that they wanted their sight back, but perhaps Jesus is, um, through Matthew's style of writing here, getting to the heart of the issue for the blind people, but also for us. And so he says to them, yes, um, or just by speaking to them, he's acknowledging them, saying, yes, I see you, I hear you, but what is it that you want me to do for you? They could have replied and said, please, um, could you help us? Could, could you give us some money? Because that would have been how they made their livelihood. Maybe Jesus is also asking them to think clearly about this, is to say, like, you know, if I give you back your sight, do you realize that your whole world is going to change? Um, I can give you your sight back, but then you're going to need to work differently. You may have to go out and get a job. Um, your, your community is going to look at you differently. So, so what is it that you really want me to do for you? And I suppose that's a question for, for us too. If, if there are any of us listening today who feel that we're trying to get God's attention and saying, Lord Jesus, uh, you know, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus, here I am. Don't you hear, don't you hear my prayers? If Jesus had to turn around to you or to myself today and say, okay, Dalm, but what do you want me to do for you? So how would we then answer that question? So I think that's well worth spending a few minutes on after our Bible study just to answer that question for yourself. So they say, let's carry on now. They say, verse 33, Lord, we want to see. So I was right. Of course they wanted to see. But I love the way that it's portrayed in this. So, so they want to see. Now, we, we are, again, holding uh, two different, uh, if you like, two different worlds in, in our hands at the same time. One is the, is the natural world and one is the spiritual world. So in the natural, they wanted to see. They had been blind. They wanted to see. They wanted their lives back. They wanted to see their loved ones, to see their friends. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to see the sunshine and to see the blue sky and the birds and all that. I mean, we can really understand their desire for that. But I 
think what also what Matthew's pointing to is that they wanted to see in a spiritual sense. Um, in one of the commentaries I was reading, I think it's the New Life application, it says this, and I quote, it says, seeing with your eyes doesn't guarantee seeing with your heart. And I, I love that because if you think about the whole encounter with Jesus and the crowds early on in the Gospels, Jesus and the religious leaders, Jesus and the Romans, in fact, Jesus and even many people today, they may see Jesus. They may know about Jesus. But just because we can see Jesus like the tax collectors could or the Pharisees could, it doesn't mean that we want to see him with our heart. And so I see these um, blind men, excuse the pun, I see these blind men when they say, verse 33, we want to see I see it in two ways. We want our eyesight back, but we also want to see spiritually. Jesus in verse 34, um, some translations say he felt sorry for them. Some say he had great compassion on them. But anyway, he's moved and he touches their eyes and instantly they could see. And we we are obviously um, really so, so marvel. We marvel at this miracle. It's like amazing. But it doesn't just stop there, and I think this is where we ourselves are challenged in the Easter story, and that is this. They instantly could see Jesus has healed them, but Matthew adds four words at the end of verse 20, and those four words are, then they followed him. So in response to their healing, they didn't, and this, this is a comparison with, um, the, for example, the 10 lepers and other people who were healed by Jesus. In response to this healing, they didn't rush back to their family to, to, to show them. They didn't do anything of that sort, but they followed him, certainly according to Matthew's version. Their gratitude was so immense, so they were so thankful and their almost newfound loyalty now to the son of David was so evident that they followed him. And, and this could well be, and, and I think it makes quite logical sense, the, the joining of more and more people to this crowd as Jesus walks towards Jerusalem. It's people who've been impacted by his life, people who've seen a different side of Jesus, it's these people who are going to be uh, shouting and cheering for him in the next part of the, uh, the scene as it unfolds in Matthew 21. And so we can just picture their joy and their gratitude. And, and I want to just come back and just use a little bit of preacher's license in this. And that is to say that we've heard the phrase son of man and son of David in today's Bible studies. But what we are challenged on is are we willing ourselves, as the two blind men were, are we willing to become sons and daughters of God? Sons with a small s, daughters with a small d, sons and daughters of God. Because when we are invited by Christ to see spiritually and we say yes, then we become um, children of God. We are adopted into the family of God. And that, I think, is... 
the ultimate message, the good news behind everything that we discuss in the Easter story is that what Christ does for us opens the door. It's an invitation for us to become children of the living God. Okay, I have, um, I think I've shared enough today, and I just pray that as we've looked at these passages, that we would reflect a bit more and prepare ourselves for Holy Week. Uh, friends, if you are listening to this Bible study and you're part of another community, or if you are away from the Fishhook area, I invite you to um, to join in with a local church in their preparation for for Easter. If they have Holy Week services, you know, by all means, join in with those. For those who are within the Fishhook circuit, we have a whole week um, of services every evening coming up. In each of our churches in the circuit, there are different times, um, but I know that certainly in the official uh, society, the Holy Week service times are at 6 p.m. That's Monday through to Thursday, which includes Tenebrae, and then there is also a Good Friday service and then the Easter weekend. But um, it's such a special time in our Christian journey, bringing to an end the season of Lent. And so for those of you who have given up something in the season of Lent, your your time of that sacrifice is coming to an end slowly, so you'll be able to celebrate at uh, Easter by then taking up those those things that maybe you've laid aside. Friends, God bless you. Um, have a wonderful week ahead, and we look forward to being in contact again next week. Amen.